We have discovered happiness. We know the way. We have found the exit out of the labyrinth of thousands of years. Who else has found it? Modern man, perhaps? I've got lost. I'm everything that has gotten lost, sighs modern man. This modernity was our sickness. Lazy peace, cowardly compromise, the whole virtuous uncleanliness of the modern yes and no. Rather live in the ice than among modern virtues and other south winds. Let us face ourselves. We are Hyperboreans. We know very well how far we live off. Neither by land nor by sea will you find the way to the Hyperboreans. Pindar already knew this about us. Beyond the north, ice and death, our life, our happiness. Friedrich Nietzsche. Since there have been advanced human social formations, there have always been those who have romanticized about what it must have been like before them. Even today, many, especially on the right, fantasize about a return to tradition, going back to a life that was like the ancient Greeks. Bronze Age pervert, for instance, a man whose online pseudonym perfectly represents his politics, has said, ancient men conquered cities and put them to the sword and fire. Meanwhile, you go to wine bar with quote-unquote GF and enjoy tasteful banter. Then in all caps, you are gay. As you might be able to tell, most of the time, when someone harkens back to a better time before the ills of modernity, it is pure projection. This can be seen in that quote, where apparently it is modern man who is gay, pejoratively, and not the ancient Greeks. In general, this sentiment is also echoed quite commonly among quote-unquote traditionalists online. An even greater irony than thinking the Greeks were straighter than the men of modernity is that even the ancient Greeks had their own return to tradition mythology. The Hyperboreans, for instance, were a mythical people that lived in the northernmost part of the world. The most common translation for the term Hyperborea quite literally means beyond the Boreas or beyond the boreal winds. Because they lived beyond the mountain range that created these boreal winds, they were believed to live in a temperate, sunny land, somehow also paradoxically covered in snow, where they had free and abundant access to subsistence through minimal work. This left them with ample time to sing and dance and worship the god Apollo, their benevolent ruler. The Hyperboreans were a reflection of what some Greeks in antiquity argued life was like in the past. This myth appears many times in classical Greek sources, with poets, historians, and philosophers testifying to its existence. Pindar, for instance, notes of them that neither disease nor bitter old age is mixed in their sacred blood. Far from labor and battle they live. Why did this mythology develop in the first place? Why was it significant enough for multiple sources discovering it to have survived beyond antiquity? Just as these return to tradition mythologies are inherently political in the contemporary era, so too did they have political baggage in antiquity. It was likely not a coincidence that the Hyperborea myth appeared in sources at a similar time that Hellenic colonies were beginning to contact and engage Celtic tribes to their north. It was also seemingly not a coincidence that these Greek colonies generally had influential cults of Apollo, hence the Hyperboreans being reported to have a similarly strong connection to him. But why care about a pseudo-mythological ethnography of the Celts done by ancient Greeks? 
Surely this old absurd myth about a golden race of beings living beyond a fictitious mountain range would be at most a story only archaeologists and historians of the modern era would care about. Yet, this myth's significance carries on beyond the age of antiquity. Like many other remnants of the ancient world, Hyperborea survived and was excavated during the Renaissance and even well into modernity. Some used it as a method to explain the origins of the Indo-European tribe, initially referred to as the Indo-Aryans, with fringe theorists stating these Aryans originated in the snow-covered lands of Siberia, citing the ancient Greek mythology of Hyperborea as evidence. This modern reimagining of the Hyperborea myth culminated in its use in the Thule Gesellschaft, a German far-right secret society that helped fund early Nazi activities, whose members included Heinrich Himmler, Rudolf Hess, and Hermann Goering. They used Hyperborea and other ancient Greek utopian myths to explain the origins of the Aryan race. Himmler, for instance, romanticized about a return to this primitive early lifestyle when the Aryans were supposedly their purest. He would even end up later using state funds to create ludicrous archaeological expeditions to, for instance, uncover Atlantis, which he viewed as being somehow connected to the original Aryan homeland. Even in the 21st century, we cannot escape this mythology having at least tangential significance. With Jean-Marie Le Pen and Thierry Boudet, far-right French and Dutch politicians, describing Northern Europe as boreal. But how did we get here? From a faraway distant land dreamt up by the classical Greeks as a pseudo-historical ethnography of the Celts, to an esoteric fascistic nightmare of an astronaut race who breeds through budding and whose successors became the Aryans. Part 1. Hyperborea in Ancient Greece To understand the development of this mythology, we must begin with its roots as an ethnography of the Celts in Ancient Greece. There were widely varying attitudes among the significant historians, poets, philosophers, etc. of classical Greece on the subject of ethnographies of faraway peoples. Are they virtuous societies that remind us of our own flaws and serve as exemplars of what we ought to be? Or are they depraved barbarians that represent the exact opposite? It's important to note that the Greeks viewed historical time as often correlated with geographical space. Moving far away from mainland Greece was essentially like going back in time. We can take the literature on the Scythians as an example of this. The Scythians, a nomad steppe people, were understood as primitive due to their distance from Greece as they lived in what is now southern Russia and Ukraine. As a result of the Scythians representing this ancient, ancient to the classical Greeks that is, social structure, whether this society was admirable or barbaric had essential implications about how the Greeks understood themselves and their relationship to their ancestors. Regardless of where an influential Greek author stood on the subject of Scythian ethnography, their conclusions were necessarily politically relevant to Greek politics. Ephorus, for instance, viewed them as an exemplar of human excellence having a social order with righteous customs that ought to be used as an ideal for the Greeks to live up to. According to Ephorus, writers before him had done the exact opposite, viewing the Scythians as barbaric and terrible warmongers that existed as far away as possible from the ideal state of existence that was realized most strongly in Greece itself. The mythology built around Hyperborea existed within this synthesis of history and geography as well. Herodotus, being the earliest significant source on Hyperborea to have survived, firmly sided with what I will half-jokingly call the primitivist side of how the Greeks conceptualized 
these ancient yet presently existing lands. Herodotus notes that Hesiod and Homer also mention the existence of Hyperborea, although whether they genuinely did is not known, as these alleged works did not survive past antiquity. This would not be a surprise though, as both of these authors also write of ancient yet simultaneously still existing lands far away from Greece that were ideal states of existence, void of human vice and error that came with the development of society. The Hyperborean homeland was said to have existed past the untraversable boundary of the Riphian mountain range. This mountain range was also perceived to be the origin of the boreal winds. The ancient Greeks thought cold was primarily caused by this wind, which was an understandable assumption given that most of them inhabited regions that were quite close to massive bodies of water such as the Mediterranean. So Hyperborea was shielded from the boreal winds and subsequently shielded from all cold. It was seen as an arctic land blanketed in snow while also being quite temperate, warm, and covered by sunlight. One explanation for the paradoxical presence of snow and warmth may have been from exaggerated reports that northern Europe was often quite sunny during the summer, despite being covered in snow. These reports must have also left out how cold the region was, or at least this detail was omitted in the Hyperborean mythology. Hyperborea's geographical and climatological status was also quite symbolically significant. The boreal winds served as a metaphor for the hubris of humanity, often being connected to the god of insolence, violence, and vicious pride, who is titularly named Hubris. Without exposure to this hubris, Hyperborea was a realm where justice and virtue prevailed, represented by its uninterrupted exposure to the sun. As a sunlit realm of justice protected from the boreal winds of hubris, Hyperborea served as a reflection of a world without the imperfections of humanity. It was a reflection of a humanity that used to exist while also serving as a source for inspiration about what humanity could one day become. The Hyperboreans were also, as noted by the earlier mentioned quote by Pindar, often viewed as a super race of humans that did not experience illness and lived much longer than those in contemporary Greece. Notably, the Hyperborean myth generally comes from authors born in ancient Greek colonies who received educations in mainland Greece. Greek colonial territories played an essential role in the creation of the Hyperborea myth. The Greeks at this time felt they had to justify their colonial expansions and seizures of land across the Mediterranean, seeing this process as potentially a product of hubris and warmongering. This is a crucial element of the social and political context that the pseudo-ethnographical stories of Hyperborea existed within. Part 2. Ancient Greek Colonies Greek colonization in this period was not a unified project, but instead a collection of independent colonial enterprises organized separately by independent city-states. Some larger city-states even had multiple colonies. The bond between these colonies and their mother cities was typically quite close, and they were generally created through settlement via the sea. If one looks at a map of these colonial cities, one will notice they are primarily coastal and near the Mediterranean. What caused the ancient Greeks to make so many colonies? This is a multifaceted question that must be reconciled before we can understand the context in which the Hyperborea myth was constructed. Given the generally naval character of these colonies, they were an especially puzzling phenomenon when considering how terrified the ancient Greeks were of the sea. This was primarily because of the relatively weak and breakable ships the Greeks used to navigate bodies of water, meaning any voyage across, for instance, a body of water as large as the Mediterranean could very well be one's last. 
A part of the truth of the cultural paranoia of setting off to sea is captured through Greek mythology, specifically in great epics such as Homer's Odyssey. Here's one of Odysseus's encounters with Scylla and Charybdis, two sea monsters who lived on either side of the strait between Italia and Sicily. Now wailing in fear, we rode on up to those straits. Scylla to starboard, her horrible whirlpool gulping the sea surge down, but when she spewed it up, like a cauldron over a raging fire, all her churning depths would seethe and heave, exploding spray showering down to splatter the peaks of both crags at once. But when she swallowed the sea surge down, her gaping maw, the whole abyss lay bare, and the rocks around her roared, terrible, deafening. Bedrock showed down deep, boiling black with sand, and ashen terror gripped the men. But now, fearing death, all eyes on Charybdis, now Scylla snatched six men from our hollow ship, the toughest, strongest men I had, and glancing backwards over the decks, searching for my crew, I could see their hands and feet already hoisted, flailing high over my head, wailing down at me, comrades riven in agony shrieking out my name for one last time. So now they writhed, gasping as Scylla swung them up her cliff, and there at her cavern's mouth she bolted them down raw, screaming out, flinging their arms towards me, lost in their mortal struggle. Of all the pitiful things I've had to witness, suffering, searching out the pathways of the sea, this wrenched my heart the most. As may be evident, mythology and storytelling were quite crucial for the ancient Greeks. Even before they had begun to use the written word, they had, as far as we can tell, quite a multiplicitous, varying, and complicated interrelated set of stories to explain where they had come from, their relationship to foreign cultures and lands, and their relationship to the gods. Much of this tradition was inspired by the Greeks being avid explorers. Poets would return home to their mother city and speak of their encounters with wondrous mythological lands and awe-inspiring sea creatures abroad. The cultural imagination of the Greeks was quite contingent on this phenomenon, as we can see with colonists bringing home stories of, for instance, Hyperborea. The Greeks of this period did not keep a particularly rigorous historical account, in the modern sense of the phrase, of their society. So most of the knowledge the Greeks had of themselves, and that we have of them now, is heavily intertwined within mythology. This is not to say, of course, that they did not keep track of what they were doing, they certainly cared quite a great deal for telling and preserving the truth of events unfolding around them. It's just that their methodology for doing so is entirely different than anything that, say, a modern academic history department would deem as valid or correct. The ones who created, blocked, and safeguarded truths concerning what could be called history had radically different attitudes for what ideas were valid than in the modern world. This may not seem nearly as satisfactory, and I, of course, would have loved it if we could have had a more supposedly empirical historical tradition within ancient Greece. Yet, would it be worth it to trade the Iliad for a dry historical document? And could we have imagined this document surviving beyond antiquity? In ancient Greece, singers and poets were quite an essential aspect of this historical myth-making process. As demonstrated in Poetics by Aristotle, poets generally articulated what could happen instead of what objectively did happen. These poets participated in a process of creation, one that was often seen as literally divine. They had a connection to the gods through the specific ways they creatively recalled history. Think of the example I read of the Odyssey. 
Think of what is being said in these stories. Who would have had the desire to make these epics? Who would have needed to approve of these epics to allow them to continue being told? On what grounds would they have approved or disapproved of them? If you're reading something like The Odyssey, try to imagine this work's general societal function, especially as it relates to the likely very common general fear of traversing oceans the Greeks must have had. And so, returning to the topic of colonies, the economic and political reasons that would have caused Greek colonists to leave their home and go out to entirely unknown lands to found a city, risking destruction by the ocean, and whichever ocean-based weather phenomena represented something like Odysseus's encounter with Carbdis and Scylla must have been quite significant. Additionally, the Greeks were ancestor worshippers and viewed their connection with the past as an essential element of their spiritual and social life. So why would so many Greeks pack up their stuff and sail to live in a new, uncertain colony across the Mediterranean on shitty ships that might get swallowed up by the ocean? We can assume that one of the main reasons this happened was that the mother city was unable to sustain a certain level of surplus population, as there is only so much farmland that a city can claim and protect. Often, the best place to put some of this surplus population is a new city, one that can also trade with its neighbors and bring some of this potential economic prosperity back home. Additionally, internal political conflicts often led to defeated or ostracized political groups deciding to leave and found a new city as well. There was essentially a broad potential set of economic, sociological, and more generally, political push factors that caused a large set of separate, independent Greek city-states to simultaneously, over a few hundred years, decide to found so many colonies. Importantly, these colonies were very different from our understanding of the word in a contemporary context. Regardless of this, though, the same economic and political factors were often at play behind the motivations to start them. These new colonies were also, unsurprisingly, not called colonies. The word colony would come through the Romans and the Latin word colonia, which is far more similar to how we understand the notion today. Colonia were military garrisons used to defend Roman interests in conquered lands. In contrast, Greek colonies were referred to as apoike, or homes away from home, and imply a far more direct resettlement of certain populations who would very quickly have to become a part of a self-sufficient city. There were, importantly, some similarities to the contemporary understanding of the word colony within this apoike. Even though the Greeks chose to settle areas that were relatively sparsely populated, avoiding larger empires and states that would conquer them, there were still local inhabitants that populated these regions, and the colonists would have to reconcile with these groups. Sometimes, this reconciliation was quite violent. And as Jonathan Hall puts it, quote, establishing a settlement overseas was no doubt a violent affair. While many of the areas colonized were quite scarcely populated, we can find within archaeological records evidence of the abandonment of villages that coincided quite directly with Greek settlements popping up nearby. It must also be kept in mind that many of these colonies were founded primarily for trade, and therefore often would have quite cordial relations with the local groups that inhabited their newly found surroundings. This Greek contact with radically differing groups, most of which had entirely alien languages and cultures, raises the question of what the Greeks, who emphasized ancestor worship, would make of their new surroundings. The Hyperborean mythology essentially comes out of Greek colonies having to invent a spiritual significance for their newfound homes, and having to reconcile that significance 
with the original inhabitants of the region? How would they relate these groups to the collection of mythological stories and ideas that allowed them to understand themselves? During the colonization of the Italian peninsula, many Greek authors began to develop a Hellenistic history of the region, transposing myths, legends, sagas, stories, and beliefs. Many of these would even travel beyond the colonies themselves to the local inhabitants, which is how we can, for instance, explain the Roman reimagining of Hellenism later on. Hyperborea begins as a myth alongside the Greek encounters with the Celts, who begin to populate regions in northern Italy and southern France around the same time this myth appears in Greek sources. This mix of myth and real peoples, between fact and fiction, was quite common for the Greeks concerning their own homeland, of course, and their understandings of themselves. Given the religious connections that the Greeks made between them and the Hyperboreans, this allowed for a claim that the Greeks were in some way culturally and spiritually connected to these regions. Hyperboreans were, for instance, believed to have initially founded three significant Apollonian holy sites within Greece itself, these being Olympia, Delphi, and Delos. One of the main reasons that the Celts have been identified as being a stand-in for the Hyperboreans is the frequent mention in sources of Hyperborea being a land of gold. Coincidentally, the Celts valued gold quite highly and commonly traded it with Greek colonies. Notably, many of these colonies, generally situated in Italia and even southern France, had quite influential cults of Apollo. This would explain the significant connection the Hyperboreans had to Apollo. These colonies developed a mythology of the local inhabitants that involved themselves, giving Celts a history within Greece, and subsequently allowing Greeks to have a history in and around where the Celts lived. The mythology the Greeks developed surrounding the Celts enhanced their understandings of themselves and further contributed to the ancient discourse on what life must have been like for Greeks in the past. But the romanticization of this perceived earlier period of human existence is not exclusive to Hyperborea, and classical Greek literature is littered with similarly constructed mythologies taking similar quote-unquote primitivist positions. Homer, for instance, noted in the Odyssey of a humankind that lived a much simpler, happier life sometime in the past. Seemingly, this golden age of humanity was sometime before Zeus began to reign over us. And Homer also mentions currently existing Hyperborea-esque mythological lands in works like the Odyssey and the Iliad that were reflections of a much more pleasant past. An example of this in Homer is what he writes of Menelaus, who, as a result of being favored by the gods, is sent to the Isle of the Blessed. The location of this isle was somewhere unreachable by ancient Greek ships, deep into the Atlantic Ocean, seemingly close to the end of the world, as Homer believed bodies of water defined the far reaches of the planet. It also had a temperate climate, and all inhabitants lived pleasant, leisurely lives without the presence of famines, illness, or death. Instead of being a unique mythology, in the sense that it is the only narrative constructed by ancient Greeks to romanticize the past, Hyperborea is instead an evolution of the mythologies of the similar type, but constructed specifically to reconcile Greek colonial encounters with Celtic tribes. Part 3. Why did the ancient Greeks want to return to tradition? According to Hesiod, gods and humankind came from the same place, and long ago, under Kronos' rule, the earlier generations of humanity lived in this golden age. The state of existence experienced by all of humanity during the time in which Kronos ruled over us continues today, 
but exclusively at the far outer reaches of the world, such as the Isle of the Blessed and Hyperborea. To quote from Hyperboreans, Myth and History in Celtic Hellenic Contacts, the Golden Age utopian existence comprises the mythical past and the continuation of it in the present, but with restricted conditions of access, the favor of the gods, and the hope of its continuation in the future. So for Homer and Hesiod, these utopian mythologies were meant to inspire hope for a future world in which humans could one day eat at the same table as the gods as they had during humanity's golden age. In Work and Days, Hesiod essentially explains why the past was so much better than the present. The utopian myths he and other classical writers constructed are meant to mirror a world in which the gods had not stolen the means of life and easy subsistence from humanity. Hesiod writes that, the gods keep men's food concealed. Otherwise, you would easily work in a day enough to provide you for the whole year without working. Soon you would stow your rudder up in the smoke and the business of oxen and toiling mules would disappear. This quote implies the existence of a time before humanity was deprived of the means of leisure and could make subsistence without toiling for most of the day. There was also an explicit reference to farming and animal husbandry in this passage. This is not a surprise given that agricultural activities took quite a considerable daily amount of time to complete, especially with the tools available to ancient Greek farmers, who comprised a large percentage of the population. Other essentially Homerian characters of these Golden Age utopias that are generally mirrored in later writings on Hyperborea are the undisturbed and pristine nature of the earth, which was not disrupted by agriculture or mining, as well as of the sea, which is not disturbed or altered by fishing or voyages. The populations of these societies' general needs were met by the fruits of the earth directly, which materialized for them through extremely minimal labor. These societies additionally were not exposed to any deadly diseases, and their inhabitants lived very long, peaceful lives. Another crucial characteristic of these utopias that is unconnected to leisure is the necessary submission to a benevolent ruler. Oftentimes, as we saw in Hesiod's example, this ruler is Kronos, while within Hyperborea, it is Apollo. It should also not be a surprise, considering the significance of leisure in these origin myths and their appraisal of benevolent rule, that many of the classical Greeks imagined the closest one could potentially be to this ideal early state of existence was to be an aristocrat, as the ruling class can leisure at the expense of all others. But what caused this romanticization of a primitive and simplistic past? What caused many of the ancient Greeks to be convinced that a human golden age had happened long before them, in a primitive and simplistic state of existence that only continued into their time as ideal societies present at the outermost corners of the world? Why is there such an emphasis on leisure and the means of subsistence being easily accessible? And finally, why is there a romanticization of a benevolent ruler that allows all of this to be possible? Interestingly enough, these origin mythologies, or something like them, are not exclusively present in ancient Greece. They're quite similar to, for instance, the biblical origin story. In the Garden of Eden, God grants humanity the capacity to enjoy leisure, then subsequently punishes us after Eve eats the apple by not allowing us to realize this pleasure. Humanity is transplanted from the garden, where food is amply available, to a world in which it is not, where we must spend most of our time laboring to attain it. Like within Hesiod, God has taken from us the ability to make subsistence while not having to work for most of the day. For a radically different reason than for the Greeks, of course, 
human action has caused us to become vicious and lose our supposed primordial golden age. By comparing these ancient Greek origin mythologies to the Garden of Eden, I can do one of my most favorite analytic tactics, taking the ideas of someone much smarter than me. Many philosophers, anthropologists, and historians have made the comparison between the Garden of Eden myth and the advent of agriculture. Among the most significant to do this are David Graeber, Richard Leakey, and Roger Lewin. There are multiple reasons in the archaeological record that one might make this analogy. Hunter-gatherers were, for the most part, happier and healthier than Neolithic farmers. They lived longer lives and were exposed to far fewer diseases. All major plagues and most major diseases, for instance, being zoonotic, transmitted as a result of animal husbandry and close crowding within cities. They labored for much less time on average to make subsistence, hunting and gathering requiring far less than farming had a lower infant mortality rate, and had increased nutritional standards. The development of agriculture allowed for quite a few things thought inconceivable by hunter-gatherers, of course. Large urban centers sprang up, the written word was invented, and population rose drastically. Though population rise was not immediate, importantly, and only took effect after the surplus in food from agriculture offset the numerous adverse health effects agriculture introduced to most of the population. To quote, elevating optimal human nutrition to a central goal of plant breeding in the academic journal Plant Science, ethnological and archaeological studies suggest that almost immediately after transition to grain-based diets, humans experienced reductions in stature, increases in infant mortality, and shrinkage of lifespans, increases in infectious diseases, and multiple nutritional deficiencies, including iron deficiency anemia and mineral disorders impacting both bones and teeth. All of these characteristics can importantly be tracked in the general description of the romanticized version of the past provided by those like Hesiod and Homer. The fact Hyperboreans were a race of people not affected by illness, the lack of time they spent laboring to make subsistence, the fact they were much taller than the average human, their land being entirely undisturbed by any agricultural products, the oceans being filled with wildlife because of the lack of overfishing, all point towards an implication that these mythologies contain within them some cultural memory of the past, before the advent of agriculture and all that came with it, or potentially, a direct comparison with societies that Greeks perceived to have mirrored what life was like for them before the advent of agriculture. But what of the fact that, in Greek mythology, these societies necessarily had a benevolent ruler? Going back to philosophers like Rousseau, our general conception of these hunter-gatherer societies is that they were quite egalitarian, with no class system, hierarchy, or patriarchy. This is echoed by, for instance, Marx, who refers to this period as primitive communism, a social order that will, for him, be mirrored by the classless, stateless societies of the future, minus the lack of technology, of course. It was the advent of agriculture, according to this view, that hierarchy, inequality, and much larger and more complex social formations became possible. Agricultural societies allowed for a surplus of food to be collected through taxes by a group of powerful people that would become the elite. A new class of bureaucrats would then pop up to manage this increasingly complex social formation, taking a proportion of this surplus and facilitating the tax system. These taxes allowed some people to not labor directly for subsistence, but instead work on, for instance, technology, theology, or philosophy. However, 
Most had to labor on farms that produced a simple set of grains and animal products that could sustain much larger groups of people than would be sustained by merely hunting and gathering. Everything in this more modern, general understanding of the development of agriculture is present in ancient Greek mythological understandings of the same phenomenon, including the lowering of living standards and the increased complexity of society, except concerning the question of hierarchy. Ironically, this modern conception of the development of agriculture is also quite contingent on mythology. To talk about the advent of agriculture, where human social formations went from simple egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers to hierarchical empires with sprawling urban centers supported by a surplus of food collected through taxing farmers is far from the complete, accurate, nuanced story of human prehistory. Early agricultural life certainly brought about the comparative ills I have described, yet the oversimplified view of a quote-unquote primitive, pre-agricultural, pre-civilizational world without strife for problems is far from what the anthropological evidence shows. There was no fundamental, immediate shift that resulted from the advent of agriculture that altered human social formation from simplistic, non-hierarchical bands of women respecting hunter-gatherers to hierarchical, advanced, urban-dwelling, patriarchal farmers. The anthropological consensus has moved far beyond this point. For some reason, most who talk about the subject, be they anarchists, communists, conservative economists, or even some world leaders, all seem to operate on these basic assumptions about our past. You can even hear this assumption parroted by some anarchists who romanticize about the existence of life before the advent of civilization, as it would necessarily entail the destruction of hierarchy. The assumption that the world before agriculture was too simple to have social hierarchy, and that the world after it was too complex to not have it, are both empirically wrong. So too is it empirically wrong that the advent of agriculture is what spurred us to move from the former simplistic society to the latter, more complicated one. We can firstly think of the approximately 25,000-year-old gravesite found close to Moscow. The family found in this site is buried with what would have been understood by those bearing them as incredibly valuable and luxurious clothing and jewelry. This site is placed during the Ice Age and it's supposed to be far before hierarchy could have possibly been invented by civilization and the advent of agriculture. Yet this site looks exactly like later burials of early monarchs. This example is not isolated, and the relatively famous Il Princip, a 16,000-year-old man, buried with what appears to be a valuable royal scepter made of exotic flint and a headdress with deer teeth that could only have been extracted thousands of miles away from when he was buried, denote this man had extreme wealth and prestige in whatever society he lived in. Anthropological studies of currently existing hunter-gatherer societies further prove this notion. In the early 20th century, Marcel Mauss noted how Inuit societies had entirely different social structures based on the particular season. Seemingly, one of these social structures is far more similar to how the Greeks might have described their life, and the other more closely mirrored our modern-day mythology. In caribou and reindeer hunting season, they would exist in small familial bands. These units were patriarchal and hierarchical, with a decision procedure and system of ownership that had a single male elder at the top. These smaller bands would then coagulate on the coastline during seal hunting season to form a much larger society centered around grand meeting houses. In this season, there was a collective, decentralized decision procedure, 
There was no system of private property, and familial relations were not essential. With, you know, orgies where any notion of paternal ownership of wives did not exist, so, you know, wife swapping, etc. The conclusion on the other side of this modern mythology, that complicated human social formations necessitated hierarchy and agriculture, is not true either. Gobelki Tepe, one of the earliest known urban centers from around 11,000 years ago, found on the border between Syria and Turkey, seems to have been built not by an agricultural civilization, but instead by hunter-gatherers whose lives seem to have been quite egalitarian. The development of agriculture did not look like the Industrial Revolution. It was not a radical, sudden overthrow of the older, simpler social formation with a sudden explosion in population and a comparatively drastic increase in technology. To quote the late David Graeber, the transition from living mainly on wild resources to a life based on food production typically took something in the order of 3,000 years. While agriculture allowed for the possibility of more unequal concentrations of wealth, in most cases, this only began to happen millennia after its inception. And so, the notion of an invention of agriculture that led to a fundamental fall from grace, or a fall from a romanticized simpler time, void of all the problems of modern life, is as much of a mythology as Pindar's notes on Hyperborea. The only difference between the contemporary mythologies and Pindar seems to be on the subject of hierarchy. So where does this leave us? It seems as if many of the mythologies we have built about what life must have been like before civilization and a class-based society that sustains itself primarily through agriculture are overly simplistic. Ironically, in a somewhat similar way that many Greek mythologies were about the same subject. Yet, even if the story of how we got from there, hunter-gatherers, to here, agricultural society, is greatly oversimplified, the effects of this change are still felt. The study I cited related to the immiseration of early farmers compared to their hunting and gathering counterparts is still certainly true, even if this transition was over thousands of years and did not necessitate the invention of hierarchy. The only difference between the hierarchies then, during our hunter-gatherer past, and now seemed to be that at some point, humans, for the most part, stopped playing around with hierarchies, so implementing them in one season, then destroying them in the other, and instead started taking them for granted. It's easy to understand how this phenomena often gives us a desire to romanticize this past. Whether we romanticize it how the Greeks did, through mythologies such as Hyperborea, or how we do now, through something like Rousseau. That will conclude the first part of this podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. The next part will come out in a week or so. I still have uh, quite a bit of work to do around it in relation to the script. It will be available for everyone, but I will put it out for an early release if you subscribe to the Patreon for $2 a month, patreon.com slash I will also be releasing some content in relation to an analysis of modern-day Hyperborea mythology that I won't really get to within this podcast. This, this generally relates to what is, I believe, generally referred to as schizo-wave. I think it's called, it's, it's this, this collection of right-wing Nazis who create these little edits about how we should return to a past that looked like Hyperborea. And I'll be coming up with uh, some videos to analyze them that will, be, that will be available exclusively for those who subscribe to the Patreon for, again, $2 a month. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It took a, a great amount of work. And there is also, of course, a script form or written form available for the $5 tier or available for those who subscribe on Substack because I believe it's the same price as the $5 tier. And I hope you all enjoyed this. Let me know if you like this form of podcast, this higher edited, much larger sort of project. 
as opposed to some of the Mark stuff, which I will probably continue doing as well. Thank you to ASDF, Corey, Jennifer, Sierra, and Solarbody for supporting me on Patreon. And I will see you all next episode.